I was um, awakened by a phone call, and my friend said, um, can you bring in my role of black and white film? And I said, okay, no problem. He said, there's a coup in progress. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Today's episode is different. Brett Elliott died earlier this year, and I was contacted by his ex-wife Polly, who offered me a cassette tape. Polly and Brett had met in college and got to know each other in Russian club at Oklahoma State University. In the summer of 1991, they went to Moscow to pursue Polly's goal of being a reporter in Russia and Brett's goal of further studying Russia. They both worked together covering the Bush-Gorbachev summit with Polly as a reporter and Brett as an interpreter. Polly left Russia early but Brett stayed a few weeks more and witnessed the collapse of the Soviet Union in August 1991 and during a rare phone call, Polly begged him to be careful, and he famously said she was worse than the coup leaders if she wanted to deny him getting out to witness history. Now, this podcast relies on listener support to enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available for free. You can support my work and help to preserve Cold War history via one-off or monthly donations. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. You can also join our Facebook discussion group where Cold War Conversations continue between episodes. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. This episode is the audio from the cassette of Brett and being 30 years old, the sound quality is not great. However, the immediacy of Brett's words just one month after the coup attempt provide us with a powerful eyewitness account of a key moment in the last months of the Cold War. I'm delighted and honoured to welcome Brett Elliott to our Cold War conversation. I'd been to Moscow a couple of times before. In 1987, I studied at Leningrad State University. In 1988, in the fall, I went to the Pushkin Institute in Moscow. And uh, so I was ecstatic to get to go back. And this time not have instructors and leaders and people tell me what to do and where to go and what to see. So I got to see a lot of Moscow this time around. And that was a good experience for for me. Um, In Late, let's see, it was late July, early August was when the summit happened. And uh, I worked for CBS News for the week, uh, just just prior to when uh, President Bush came to town and right all the way up through uh, the summit. And so I thought that was the high point of of my summer. And uh, so did Polly. So she came back to America. (laughs) And uh, if it, I don't know, has anybody... Been, how many people have been to the Soviet Union? Okay. Well, when you go, you'll find out that uh, life is, well, you've read, I'm sure, but life is a struggle on its own. It has its own dynamic. As far as eating, 
I think it would be nice to have somebody cook for you. But I never worked that out for three months I was there. So I basically, <clears throat> being a well, the kind of person that doesn't like to cook, if you don't mind cooking, uh, you can you can get around okay. And uh, so we basically, we cook some, we shop some. Uh, in the markets, you can get all the food. At, well, we were there in the summertime, you know, you could have all the food you wanted uh, for um, not too much money. Let's say, uh, to uh, see a kilogram of beef costs about fifty rubles, and the exchange rate was beginning of the summer twenty-seven rubles to a dollar, and at the end it was thirty-two. So for a little less than two dollars, you could have two kilograms of uh, beef. So it wasn't that expensive. Generally. I ate out, and we ate out, and then, um, and then when the uh, coup happened, I generally ate just a, a meal a day. I, I sort of fudged on the Russian experience and had McDonald's some um, because it was enough calories in one meal to get me through the day, and I got to see more that way. So um, what happened, let's see, Polly had been gone for a couple of weeks, and we agreed to... Uh, I called her on her birthday, and she called me. That was the 13th of August, and I called. She called me again, and we said, well, "That's it. That's the last time we'll talk." You know, I'll see you on Monday, August 26th. And uh, then on Sunday, uh, August 18th, I went to an air show because it was Air Force Day. They have uh, floats day. They have for the for the Navy, which happens a month before, and uh, the at the end of this day, then they shoot off fireworks. So this day, I went to the air show, and I saw, I saw um, at the very end of MiG twenty nine, which I thought was it. I thought that was the going to be the, the the end all of, of uh, power, military power. Of course, before this, uh, a couple of years before, I had seen uh, tanks and missile launchers and missiles going towards Red Square for their uh, demonstration for. Uh, for the October Revolution, well, they, they celebrate that on November seventh, and so that that was exciting too. Just seeing the tanks go by, so I'd seen these two different things: MIGs and tanks in the street, all for show. And uh, then after the show, I went to what is called Manier Square, and it used to be called Plochet Revolutsi, okay, um, and it's called Manier Square because on this huge demonstration area, uh, I have. A here, this huge demonstration area here um, is this place called the Manège, where they used to train people how to ride horses. So that was Sunday, and uh, I also did one other thing that was something I hadn't done in the time. I lived, I've lived in Moscow for about five months total. I never, uh, I think when, when my group went to see the Lenin Museum, I, I was doing something else. Uh, Back in 1988, so I went to the Lenin Museum that day. I looked around the Lenin Museum, and it's a it's a really extensive uh, biography um, of Lenin. So uh, that was the end of, the, of Sunday, and on Monday morning, I was um, awakened by a phone call, and my friend who um, was living well, we were we were living in the same place, but he was uh, at another location. He called me and said, uh, "Can you bring?" in my role of black and white film that we had bought the other day at the Ukraina hotel. And I said, okay, no problem. He said, there's a coup in progress. You know, I'm still asleep, I guess. 
having lived from 1987 off and on in the Soviet Union, I wasn't that surprised when he said there's a coup in progress because this was something that uh, when I was there in 1988, especially one of my roommates, all the time he kept saying, I'm going to be here when something like something like a coup happens, when something when people are protesting the streets. Well, well, we were there the whole time. Nothing exciting happened like that. And so I asked my friend, uh, uh, he's from Holland, and the art director of the Moscow Guardian, he uh, told me about the coup, the coup of progress. And I said, well, tell me more. You know, I don't know anything. I don't understand what's going on. And he said, uh, he said, I don't really know anything more. Uh, he may have told me, he may have told me a few different things. He may have told me Gorbachev is ill. He may have told me that Yanayev was, was assuming the powers of the presidency of the Soviet Union. He didn't know much more. So I had a, B, I had a uh, shortwave radio, so I tuned into the, into the BBC, and I listened, and I heard uh, the same thing as you were hearing, that uh, Gorbachev was ill. And uh, so I may have picked that up first on Radio Moscow, I'm not sure. And uh, that, you know, I've taken over and, uh, well, that the, the situation was tense and they didn't know what exactly was going to happen. Now, I don't know if I heard the tanks from the streets, but by the time I got to the Moscow Guardian film at about a quarter till 12, my friend said, yeah, there's been reports. There have been reports that tanks are in the area. Okay. And in the area for us is down not near Red Square. So her office uh, was not far from there. So I walked, we walked uh, to Red Square. We walked through Red Square, and it looked just like a normal day, sort of, sort of cloudy. At this time of year, it's cloudy, rainy, and then all of a sudden the clouds will move away, the sun will come up, and it'll be hot, sort of hot. So you're taking your clothes off and put them back all the time. It was one of those kinds of days. Um, there was a man in front of a video camera, and he was giving, he, well, I, I heard his voice. It was southern, had a southern accent. And he said something like, uh, even in these times when there's new leadership, a coup, bad times in the Soviet Union, 100 people have been saved. Okay, and this guy's in front of a video camera sending feeds back. Right, so I'm, I'm just saying to myself, this is business as usual these days in Moscow. Okay, everybody can say whatever they want. They walk on through and they're tourists and people... Uh, uh, maybe even a few black marketeers, or they call them farsoshiki, and nowadays they call them speculators or businessmen, walking around selling army watches, etc. It was just one of those kind of days. Was we walked uh, by what is called well, there's the historical museum, and then there's uh, two alleyways. I walked through one. We walked through one, and that's when we first saw we saw our first troops, um, and we walked through the square. Uh, I looked back and I thought, wow, I should go back to Red Square. It could be more interesting back there. But as we tried to walk back through, they were they were then clearing Red Square out. Um, a militiaman grabbed my arm and, you know, sent me the other way. So we stood around in the square for a while and saw a um, demonstration building up here. Um, Yeltsin is is telling the people to go on strike. And this that's what this sign says. And uh, that's what they're saying in all of this. And so while all this is happening, I really hadn't had a whole lot of time to think back, but I'll, I'll share a little bit with you. Of course, what we were all thinking probably was this seems reminiscent of something that happened in the past. And 
I, I spoke to a group yesterday in Tulsa called the Kiwanis Club, and most of those people a little bit older. And so in 1964, that was the year that, that uh, I was born in April, and um, most of you maybe were born a little later than that. And so uh, here's what the, what the newspapers were saying uh, in 1964, reminiscent of what was happening today. So here's what it said. On October 17th, Nikita Khrushchev has been ousted by the Soviet Union's Communist Party and replaced by Leonid, Leonid Brezhnev, who will take Khrushchev's job as first secretary, and Alexei Kasigin, who will take over as Soviet premier. The change in leadership happened quickly, surprising most Western observers. Initially, spokesmen at the Kremlin said Khrushchev was leaving because of poor health. Same thing they were saying on the radio. But today, Pravda, again the mouthpiece of the, of the Communist Party, the official news agency, ripped into the deposed leader, which clearly indicates he fell from grace in the party. Pravda called Khrushchev's leadership one of harebrained scheming, immature conclusions, and hasty decisions and actions divorced from reality. It also suggested he had promoted his own cult of personality for which he had criticized Joseph Stalin. So that was the backdrop. These coup leaders weren't very imaginative. It was very clear. It, was, it wasn't totally clear at that point. But as, especially by the time Tuesday, um, Tuesday had passed, um, the people on the BBC, the, the experts and all, were saying things don't look right here. Okay? Um, for example, Gorbachev, uh, as far as people could tell, was still alive. Yeltsin, of course, was still alive, and he was standing up on tanks, giving speeches, rallying the people. Uh, also, by it was Monday evening when I Monday night when I got home at one. Uh, let's see, it was uh, 11, 11.30, something like that, in Moscow. I got a call from Pollard, and uh, everyone back home, of course, was worried about me. But the fact that we had a that I had a call showed that communications were still up, uh, and those wouldn't be very hard. To to disconnect those simple lines like that. So, I'm let's let's put me back where I was. I was on Manier Square, and remember, this is the day after I'd gone to see. And, and what I'd gone to see at the Manier was a. Um, well, we hold the sign back up again here. This was uh, for the Afghan War. It's a uh, an exhibition that they were showing there. It was a good exhibition, and a bit ironic, perhaps that. Um, the tanks were going to roll in right next, right next to this. And this column of armor was, it ran all the way the length of the Alexander Garden. So I'm standing in the middle of the square, and I hear armor coming, armor coming, loud, like this. So I started running towards the sound, and people behind me were screaming. And as I turned back around to look, just imagine, like, people, just imagine this group of people running, but not running straight, running like this, like this. Some people going straight. Confusion. They didn't know what it was exactly at that moment. They were uh, they were emboldened, but also I think they were frightened. Okay, and I have to admit I was the same way. I wasn't sure. I didn't take this picture of the people looking the other way, but um, I wasn't sure myself. And as I looked at the position that I was in, I was standing sort of towards the garden uh, in a defensive position almost. So if if indeed they were shooting, I could run this way. Okay. But these people up at the very front were very bold, okay, like at Tiananmen Square. But the, but, the, but the tanks, as soon as the people got in front of them, I'm not sure exactly what they did, 
Uh, I think they may have given a little bit of ground, but as they did that, the, the, this armor, this this lead piece of armor just stopped, okay, which set the tenor for the whole day that was to pass. So I've got these two pictures all passing around. This is the first one, and then the second. So I'm I'm amazed, and I walk up, and I start taking picture after picture after picture of this event that's going on. People just walked up and down this armor column, and they talked to the soldiers, okay? And uh, some of the things that they talked about, they, they, uh, well, they hopped up on the armor, and they, were put, they put their arms around the guys and said, hey, why don't you guys turn these tanks around and go home? They, well, actually, armor. By this time, I hadn't seen any, any full-fledged tanks. Like, the very first thing here was a, um, was a um, barrier mover, let's say, okay? It was something that you just knock over anything in its way, okay? And um, there was one, one moment when I, I remember this uh, man, woman of about 50 or so said, um, she was yelling up at him. She said, she said, what's wrong with you, you boys? Don't you have any pride? Don't you have any, or don't you have any shame or whatever they were talking to them, you know? And uh, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And they said, you you guys wouldn't, we, we brought you up correctly. You wouldn't dare shoot your own people. And she's kept admonishing me. Then there were some gentlemen standing next to me, and uh, they said, they were, they were much more skeptical of this fact. They weren't afraid at that very moment, but they, they, they were asking the question, what about a day from now, two days from now when things change? And uh, these gentlemen who probably had served, well, more than likely served in the military, knew the answer that these guys would shoot if given orders, uh, real orders, okay? That never, never really came. So I walked up and down this uh, armor column for about two hours, and this picture I took on top of a of a uh, bus that was now a barricade. And it wasn't that I was being that daring at that point because I was up there with, with uh, young boys, men, women, okay, uh, taking this picture. It just gave me a really nice vantage point for, uh, for what was going on. That, that, like I said, that line of armor ran uh, the length of the Alexander Gardens. And there was one man who was ex- extremely animated and uh, he had long hair for the military, um, graying, and he was really talking to the people. And, and people, the, the Russians were really interested in talking if, if the military people would talk back, right? And so um, this picture that I took right here was a flash. And just seconds before I took this picture, um, somebody had taken his, a flash picture of him, and he became upset over this 
over this fact. Well, anyway, I got him sort of like this, right? He was sort of upset, uh, but not really. He was like, well, maybe the conversation should end here. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that he said, I was asked of him, what will you do? He said, okay, so you've come here and you've made it clear that uh, you're not going to shoot people. You're not going to be killing people. And uh, that's all well and fine. But what happens if we start throwing bricks at you? Then what are you going to do? And th this is this guy. He was like the one who had the answer for the people. And he just said, he mainly said, don't, don't try that. There's no point, right? Because we will defend ourselves, okay? Then a little later, about two hours passed, and I, I was, at this moment, I believe that I was that I was seeing the only armor in Moscow. You get this, you had this strong feeling, you know, you're like, I'm seeing everything that's going on, when in reality there was armor all over the city in different locations, on the other side of Red Square, um, patrolling, okay? Um, so I stuck, I stuck around there. I knew, I knew what I had seen. I, I was in a good location. I was, uh, here's the Kremlin Wall. I uh, was walking through the Alexander Gardens, which is strange also. They didn't secure the Alexander Garden at this point. There were tourists still walking around, checking out the uh, cathedrals behind the Kremlin Wall. And on this wall was written what, what seems even more defiant than just standing and stopping, well, not just, but stopping a tank. I mean, that was defiant enough. This said, I don't know if anybody saw this on the news, but it says, Niet Dictatorian says no to the dictator and has an exclamation point. Okay, so I took a snapshot of that, and then about a half an hour later, a rainstorm came up. So this picture, next picture I have, I have my, my umbrella up, and I, I take a picture um, with the zoom a little bit closer. And these people had raced out and with buckets, and they were, they were wiping away the whitewash, okay, that says no to the dictator. Okay, so that's... That was, uh, that was the general mood <laughs> by the people who were down on the square. Okay, so that was, uh, that was at about 3, 3.30 and about 4 o'clock. Some strange things that I saw. For example, I saw a lady giving a tour in Russian, and she was looking back at the Kremlin Wall, armor evident all around, and she was giving, tour, she was giving this tour. She was saying, this is such and such a tower. It was built in 1434. It's uh, such and such a height. And very matter of fact, uh, very, uh, as in tourists is wont to be. So I thought, I guess I, well, I hadn't seen enough, of course. But by now, the whole area that I had been walking in was secure. Okay. And the, and the, uh, the military was trying to move people there. Their objective was to take Manya Square and basically to, to go all the way around the Kremlin and secure a perimeter. And so they were slowly, slowly doing this, uh, just asking people to move. When people would move, then they would take more ground. Okay. Um, so I went up to McDonald's at about four o'clock and there wasn't a long line that day for McDonald's. Sometimes the line can reach up to an hour that I found, maybe even longer. I don't know. Uh, if you, if you would stand in line that long for a hamburger. Um, so I went in and I had, I had my lunch, I had my, not my lunch, I had my meal for the day, because it wasn't time to have a lot of meals on a day like Monday was, and uh, let's see, I can tell you what I had that day, I had, uh, remember I was starving, all, all the excitement I've been through, I had a Big Mac, uh, a cheeseburger, 
two orders of fries, a Coke, a Sprite. Um, and then after all that, then I, I bought a shake and a uh, apple pie. Yeah, yeah. I Well, I got sick on Thursday. I got really sick on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, everything was over by the... So, uh, I went out to the square. It, it was warm, and it, it had been raining, but it wasn't raining now. And I sat down. I set a book down. I sat down on a bench, and I was drinking a strawberry shake, and I'd already eaten my pie. I had a backpack on, and I had an umbrella in my hand. I sat down, and I heard the sound of armor again coming up. And I grabbed all my stuff, and I started running along the park. It's Pushkin Square. Okay, this is where McDonald's is located. Pushkin is located on the other side of Tverskaya. Okay, on the other side of this street called Tverskaya, which the military was trying to secure. And um, I got to the top of the stairs, and just before the... Uh, the people had stopped. Now there was one armored vehicle went by, another one went by, turned left, another one went by, and then the people got in front of the, the armor again. The armored people driving these armored pieces weren't prepared to crush people. Okay, so they they were stopping and they stopped, and that's where I, I got I got up there at that point. And it was a, it was a really amazing sight. I mean, I'm right on McDonald's, and uh, behind me are cars trying to pass by this way. Beep beep, and the and the uh, police were trying to hold a little bit of order. But the, there was a sense of a sort of lawlessness in the city. And uh, people people did basically, well, they, to the military especially, they did what they wanted to. They were asking them to turn around. Okay? And uh, when this happened, in front of this column, the people were now climbing up onto the, onto the armor. But to the sides, they didn't, these guys were a whole lot more serious, and so they were given orders to jump out of their vehicles and keep people away. And there's a picture of a, of a, of a young lady being told, and the guy's got his gun at the ready, so you can see her. And it's, you got to remember, this is on a very busy street that leads right down to the, to the uh, Manier Square and then eventually to Red Square. After about 10 minutes of uh, seeing things like this gentleman with the white, red, and, or the white, blue, and red flag, in his hand, and being told to get away, sure enough, the, uh, and here's a picture with McDonald's in it anyway, they were, they were convinced that they weren't going to get very far that day, there's another one, and so they turned around, and I was really excited by now, I had, I think I had a, I was on my final roll of film, I knew I had to buy more, and this, this event was taking place, so I took a bunch of snapshots, but I got one particularly good one. Um, as they were driving away, this shows the uh, white, blue, and red flag. Men, people, all over the uh, the armored vehicle, and Coca-Cola sign in the background. Well, anyway, you can take a look at this. This was I, was I was really excited as I was going back, and I was pretty close to this, I assume, standing right in front of it. So, though I was a part of, of this whole uh, scene, I was a voyeur on their uh, on their uh, on their revolution. Okay, so I, I did get involved in demonstrations, listen to speeches, but I also had a camera in my hand. I wasn't one of those people on the, on the tanks and my two fingers lifted up, as you can see in this picture here. Then after that, they, the people got organized, and they a, a demonstration, and I have a picture of an emotional moment. This is my final picture on this roll, and I had to get more later. Um, 
and these people are, are marching. This is a really good picture. You have a lady like this, another one like this, and a guy going like this. That, and they were serious, right? This will not stand. No to the dictator, like it was written on the wall. So here you go, bunch. All right. So after that, I marched in this parade, so to speak, this demonstration. And the things they were here. Here's what they were saying. They were saying "Da Loy," okay, which means basically down, okay. "Da Loy Kepe SS," okay, Communist Party of the Soviet Union. "Da Loy KGB," okay, KGB. And who else were they saying down to? Well, down to the junta, right? So they say, da loy juntu, right? I heard that the first time. I was like, say. I never had, I mean, when they say junta, it's really deep in the back of their throats. And when they say, da loy juntu, I can't even quite get how ugly it sounds. They also said, racia, right? And then they would say, nazia, okay, for the nation, okay? So these are people bleeding for Russia, okay? And they were, they were serious. These, these people got together just randomly on the street. We marched down by uh, Mayakovsky, the square of Mayakovsky, Polshid Mayakovskova. And then we marched down the ring, I see, the garden road. Um, what was it called? No, it was a garden. And... Uh, by the American Embassy, and then down to the Russian Federation building, okay? And I have a picture of the Russian Federation building here. This this I took that evening at uh, sunset, okay? And um, anyway, the, the clouds had cleared. This shows you what kind of weather. It had been rainy and cloudy, and then as nightfall came, the, uh, there was the building, okay? When I got to the Russian Federation building, or the White House, we just call it the White House, simplicity, the, uh, well, I was out of film. So I went off across the, across the bridge to the Ukraina, and I saw two tanks sitting like this, and two gentlemen being talked to. Now, this was a little bit, after, this picture was a little bit after the fact, but um, they were being talked into joining forces against the Soviet, against the Red Army. And uh, these two tanks, and one of the guys told me, I asked him what these tanks were doing, and he said these tanks are now part of, uh, have defected, they're now part of, of the Russian, uh, in defense of the Russian, um, the Russian uh, White House. Okay, so that was basically the end of that day, and I guess Yeltsin had spoken earlier, and I missed, I missed all of his talks that day, and I went back to Red Square, and I saw what was happening. They basically had Manya Square uh, totally... Uh, they had all, all except for a little bit. By the next morning, they did have uh, the square to the, the military had it. And so I have a picture of that. And as I walked up Fierskaya, I have a picture of me in front of of some uh, armor and paratroopers. Okay. And I went to the... Yeah, I was wearing my Eskimo Joe shirt that day. That was day two. Here, I have a picture of Edward Shevardnadze, and he was speaking to the... Uh, crowd out in front of Yuri Dolgoruki on one side, and it's the Moscow City Council uh, building here. And the sign says, Puchisti Paidut Patsut, so these, the, the, the Kunta, or the, or the Puchis, right, uh, will come to justice, and then don't, don't go along with it, okay? This was, 
this was on Wednesday, right before the tank started leaving Moscow. I have a picture of a young man who was on this vehicle, this armored vehicle here. He took the white, blue, and red flag, and he draped it around his body and drove by seven tanks that I couldn't, I mean, you can't tell, you couldn't tell at this point who they were loyal to, but he was basically imploring them to come over to their side. And one of the final pictures I have here is of a man on top of a barricade uh, near the White House, and he's got his hand on the flagpole, his left hand on the flagpole, and his right hand up like this. And uh, anyway, it's an interesting picture. A victory, victory at that point. Um, then I got sick on Thursday, and so I missed the uh, ripping, I guess the, the taking down of Zhirzhinsky from uh, Lubyanka, from right in front of there, the uh, first checklist. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to see that. But the next day, I went up to the base, and I have a picture of me with uh, with an umbrella. And uh, I was told I was sort of being yelled at that day uh, because they these chips on this base. Um, the the people, the Russian council people, were trying to tell people don't do this because this base is a part of a pre-revolutionary uh, statue. And so they were sort of trying to keep people away from there. So I said, okay, okay. I gave my camera to a guy, and I said, I just want to have my picture taken. They said, okay, for your memory, that's okay. And then this is the way, this is the KGB building in the background here. And you can see what happened to Felix's uh, statue base. They painted all sorts of awful things on there. Uh, down with the K KGB, down with the Communist Party. Felix is a fascist, etc. <laughs> all right. Um so then on Saturday it was the funeral, and uh, I went down to Monument Square, and I listened to that for a little while. And uh, one of the things that I saw it was interesting. There was a, there were two gentlemen with uh, black flags, and uh, as I listened to them talk, they weren't mourning. They weren't in mourning. They were anarchists, philosophical anarchists. <laughs> the true anarchists were the people who had, I mean, the true militant anarchists were the ones who died. One of the gentlemen, one of the young men. Um, jumped on a tank and was covering up the holes so they couldn't see. So they said. I wasn't there that night when uh, when the violence broke out. I was there at 11 and the violence broke out at 12. There was a curfew and I promised uh, my family that I wouldn't get killed while I was over there. So I went in and uh, anyway, this guy, something like he tried to pull an officer or a, a military person out of his tank or something like that and he got shot. Two other people got crushed. And so this procession, after they met on Monia Square, walked up Tverskaya, turned down Mayakovsky, down the same street, by the American embassy where the, where the people had been killed. Apparently this is what they did. This is what they said they were doing in the paper. And then they, and they, uh, they uh, commemorated them there where they died. Then they went to a place called Vagankovskaya, Vladbysh uh, Cemetery. And that's where, for example, Yasinin is buried, a poet who died in 1925. And then in, is a reverence poet in Russia, and uh, where Vysotsky is buried, a famous folk singer. Um, so that was the end of, of my trip, and I came home. Uh, I flew back through Yugoslavia from one bad spot to another, spent the night in Belgrade, and was told that, uh, that uh, well, I was told by the gentleman who helped me check in that things weren't looking too well and some things needed to be hashed out in Yugoslavia. Yeah, he wanted to know what was going on back in Moscow, and I said, what about here? And, all. and he said, oh, things aren't too good. And anyway, it was a somber moment, but uh, 
then I flew home to New York and spent a couple of days there, and then I got back to Tulsa on Wednesday. So, any questions? <laughs> I was, uh, let's see, I, when the guys hopped out of their vehicles on Tierskaya, um, I think that was when I was most fearful because I was really close to them, and they were confused because they, I got the impression that they really had an objective. You know, they've been told, you guys need to get down the street, and they were stopped, and they were confused, and uh, they didn't want people near their tanks, and I was sort of close, so um, that was one moment, and I think just generally, I think that night at 11, it was a rainy night, it was Tuesday night, and uh, the killing then happened just after midnight, and uh, that was an ominous night, and, and uh, uh, an attack on the White House was imminent, so the newscasters were saying, and, and indeed, it was all planned, but uh, Alpha Group, from what I could read, wouldn't, wouldn't act the first time in, in, in their history. And I think what happened down, down there, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but it wasn't, I couldn't figure out why the, this little group of people tried to do something. And it wasn't a concerted effort because uh, they could have taken uh, Yeltsin out in, in short, a short period of time, this, this Alpha Group or another group similar to it. So... Um, let me, let me think if there was any other time I was, I was afraid. There was, a, there was a really interesting time. It was about an hour and a half after the tanks had rolled through. And uh, I, I, think I, I think I really met up with a KGB agent at this point because, I mean, he was, he was if you could find a stereotypical uh, KGB agent, he, was, he, had, he had very steely blue eyes, and, and he was very serious. He was dressed in a dark suit. And uh, I, was, I was just lining up a picture of Kutafaya Tower, uh, and then we went across to uh, Red to behind behind Red Square, uh, behind the uh, Kremlin Wall. And I was just lining it up. I wanted to get the star and the steeple, and I wanted to get some. And as it turned out, it wasn't a very good picture that I was lining up because I took it later. But he he, he looked at me and he said, and said you, know, you, "You know, you can't take photographs here." I said, "Oh, really?" And he said, "Yeah." Um, let me recollect what he said. We talked a bit. He said, he said, don't do that. I said, okay, I won't. I said, I, and then I said, uh, I said, that's good. I don't know why I said that's good. I was nervous. I said, I said, and he said, no, 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 it's not good. It's not good. And I said, I said, uh, excuse me. And I, you know, I won't take any pictures. And I was, I was, I was a little bit frightened by this one individual. Yeah, that was, that was true. I remember that now. Any, any other questions? Okay. I don't know about the rest of the country, but I can talk for Muscovites. They weren't getting good information. Uh, very few people have uh, shortwave radios. Some people might get CNN, but very few know English very well. So what they were doing, though, the way they got the word out, they had, they had, uh, uh, well, just pieces of paper typed and. Uh, or even handwritten or whatever, decrees from Yeltsin, and they were put all over runoff, and they were put all over the subway system, for example, outside the subway system. And that's how they got their uh, their news. And it seemed to work because people people were really interested. I mean, everybody walked by and read what was going on. And I have a copy of page two of the decree that was thrown out of the White House, the Russian Federation building, uh, on Tuesday. Let's see, was it Tuesday? No, Monday night. And uh, then, interestingly enough, well, I got page two. I can get page one. It was really, people were fighting for this news, you know. It was this crazy thing. And I had two pieces. I gave one away. 
but it wasn't very much information. Then that night I'd gone back to Red Square and a, uh, a priest then got up and spoke and then a woman read this decree. And so I had already, wow, this sounds familiar. It's hearing off the same decree that I had read by Yeltsin to stand up, uh, not to be violent, basically, and uh, to go on strike and, and uh, that this would not stand. So as far as the rest of the country, I would assume that the rest of the country wasn't getting very good news. Uh, way out, way out. Yes. Um, okay. Initially, then, right? Um, let's see, well, it would be a, it would be probably about a mile, sort of a mile area. I would walk down, and then across, and then back, and then yeah. So it's about a mile. I I, I really walked a lot that day, and I I had unfortunately I, I wore my hiking boots, which is okay, but I hadn't been wearing them all summer, so I, I wasn't used to wearing them, and uh, I had uh, by the end of the day. Right after Polly called me, and I sat down and I rewrote Monday. I have I have Monday down in minutia, and uh, I wrote all that down. I got to sleep about three a.m. and when I lay down, it was, it was pain. I, mean, I had blisters all over my feet. That's how far I walked that day. It was really <laughs> the most exciting day, you know, of my life. It just happened happened to be in the right place to you know, whatever, and nobody nobody will got hurt on that Monday. Okay. Yes. Every bit of information that came from them was 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 delivered. I think basically from the speech, like it was delivered from their own perspective, and then booed, whistled at. Yeah, and then of course, of course, they had control of all the media, so they were watching on TV and getting it through Pravda and other news sources. And another interesting thing happened: uh, nine publications, nine. Yeah, nine publications were allowed to publish on Tuesday, and um, one of them said they wouldn't, and that was Izviestia. And uh, I actually, I lucked into a copy of Izviestia. They gained a lot of respect from those, especially who were down there, but this is the this is a copy of Tuesday, and uh, this shows, right, Bunding, this is a long flag that's stitched together, and... Uh, it's the white, blue, and red flag. And then you have a picture of tank stopped and people clamoring. This is a good picture. This is probably on Pushkin Square because his Vistia was right above me. You see, their building is there, and so he zoomed in. Uh, or, or maybe it wasn't that, but anyway, he hopped down and he took his picture. And it says, uh, when, you first, when I first looked at this, I, I, I wondered how this, how this line related to the two pictures. And it says... In the conditions of emergency, of the emergency situation, okay, and it seemed it seemed like they were making I don't know, fun or parodying the situation that was going on here. This, these were emergency. This was an emergency time, and yet all these people were marching. And so this this seemed like more like free press than uh, than by a press that was uh, that was uh, sanctioned by the government. Then I got a, I got a hold of a copy the next day. This this one I lucked into also. I bought that at Pushkin Square. This one was given to me. The person had extra copies. And it shows the tank that, that, was, that was blown up and um, a makeshift uh, Orthodox uh, icon stand. And uh, the people uh, standing listening to the violence. All the umbrellas. Umbrellas would go up and they would come back down. And a picture of the Yeltsin. So unfortunately, though, I didn't get uh, the I didn't get Wednesday. I didn't get the Thursday copy of the paper because I was stumbling around that day. 
gotten so sick from all the excitement or whatever. And here's a good picture. This is this shows uh, a young tank driver would stand up like this, and it says it uses a, a form of son simok. You know, and it says, "Don't you have any shame, young son? You know, little little boy, little son." It's really a classic picture there. And this is uh, just a. There's lots of publications. By this time, everybody was publishing. This is this has a a uh, interview with uh, Vladimir Pozner, for example. Another question? Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't think. You know, I don't think they would have been this defined Things have really changed since then. For example, just on the economics on the economic side, when I first got got to Leningrad in uh, 1987, my Russian wasn't all that good, and I was in this little bar cafe, or bar restaurant type place, and this girl, I, I was talking to this lady, and she she wanted to uh, exchange money with me, right? And she wanted to get two. She wanted to give me two rubles for one dollar. And now you can get thirty-two or above. You see, so things have spiraled out of control. Uh, they've been allowed to. So at that point, things were still a lot tighter, um, just from an economic standpoint. People were only beginning to speak out. By 1988, uh, one of my friends who now lives in Boston. I haven't talked to him about this or why, what he's doing in America exactly. I think he's just working. But he told me that if he was given a chance, um, he would leave and he would try to stay away if he could. And he said within five years, things would, would be cracked down again. That's what he believed. This is in 1988. So not only Shevard Nadza was predicting this and other people, but, but also uh, this young man had that opinion. And uh, I had another friend who came to America uh, but he had no intention of staying. He just came for three months to New York, and he made $3,000 and made it back to Russia with $1,200. And he even declared that money. Yeah, he declared it so that they, so what he said was, I declared this because I don't want them to be able to say, how did you earn this illegally? You have this money. That's it. Thanks a lot. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community 
received the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.